everyone, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. From Marcus Lopez, I'm your host, Larry Smith. On today's program, the hyper-violence of the cartels in Chiapas, Mexico, the rise and escalation of violence perpetrated against the indigenous peoples throughout the region. We will get an extensive update on the role of the cartels, human trafficking, narco-trafficking, weaponry trafficking, its relationship to the state and capitalist mega projects, and the violence perpetrated against Mother Earth and the indigenous peoples in Chiapas, Mexico. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone Today on American Indian Airwaves, on the cusp of Indigenous Peoples Day, we go to Mexico where approximately 15% of the population is Indigenous with more than 62 groups throughout the state. We go to the La Condon jungle area of Chiapas, Mexico, where the cartels have escalated their hyper-violence against the Indigenous peoples of the region. Our guest today on American Indian Airwaves is Richard Stuller Schulk, a retired professor of political science at Eastern Michigan University. He's a community activist involved with the Schools of Chiapas, which is an organization of grassroots activists and communities working to support the autonomous indigenous Zapatista communities of Chiapas, Mexico. Today on American Indian Airwaves, executive producer and co-host Marcus Lopez joins myself in interviewing Richard Stoller Schulk on the rise of escalated cartel violence, state violence in relationship to the mega projects, and the relationship between the two. We begin with a brief summary history on the EZLN, the Zapatistas, with Richard Stoller Schulk. Mexico is a country of about 129 million people, and um, somewhere around 15% of the population um, are identified as indigenous in uh, about 62 different indigenous groups and over 300 different linguistic subgroups within. Um, And indigenous people in Mexico, as in so many other parts of the world, have been marginalized, oppressed, excluded in January of 1994, the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, a largely indigenous, mostly Maya uh, group in the southeast Mexican state of Chiapas, uh, rose up in rebellion. And their cry was, ya basta, we've had enough. Um, It had only been 500 years, and they had been uh, trying in various ways to 
make their voices heard, not just the people in Chiapas, but uh, indigenous people throughout the country. Um, and this was enough. And really the last straw, and the Zapatistas have said in reflection on their uprising, that what really set it off was the neoliberal or ultra-free market uh, policies um, that began to hit and that particularly hurt the poor rural populations and especially indigenous populations. Um, and the government, uh, in response, first tried to militarily crush the rebellion, and that didn't work because the whole population of the country rose up in sympathy with the Zapatistas and said, wait a minute, you have to at least talk. Um, and so talks began, but uh, within two years, the talks had broken down, a series of false promises. We know that story from the history of indigenous people in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, and the Zapatistas said, okay, well, we're building our own autonomy. We are going to govern ourselves, create our own rules, uh, work in our communities. Uh, you know, if the rest of Mexico and the world wants to come along uh, for democracy, freedom, justice, and the principles that we rose up for, we welcome other uprisings. But in the meantime, this is what we're doing in our territories. So there's been a kind of standoff. Uh, and the neoliberal policies of uh, corporate greed on a global scale have continued apace, and that is what, is what has intensified many of the conflicts uh, in indigenous territories and throughout the country. Thank you, Richard. That was a, a short course for our listeners, and for me especially, since we cover here in American Indian Airways many subjects. Let's go to the meat of the matter here on this hour, and we're talking about the narco effects and the mega projects, but especially around the desert of solitude uh, and the Palenque Penidaria Highway and the people that are affected um, are the Choles, the Nacodons, and the Testales who live, the native people who live in the area that are getting disrupted by um, this new uh, form of attack, uh, from the, especially from the Jalisco Nuevo and the Nación Cartel. Um, and ex please explain what's going on in different communities to our listeners. Sure. Um, there's been some news in uh, recent months, in the last couple of years, really, of escalating narco-political violence. Well, of course, that's been a phenomenon in Mexico in general, but in the state of Chiapas, it had seemed to be quiet. That is, there hadn't been a lot of uh, seeming direct drug-related violence for a long period of time, but it was illusory because really it was because there was a pact between the two major um, criminal cartels operating in that area, the Sinaloa cartel and the um, most recently the Jalisco New Generation cartel. Um, so that pact broke down and that explains in the short term the escalation of violence, this turf war between the two major cartels. And um, unfortunately for many of the indigenous people in the region, uh, the most intense part of the conflict, the dispute of territory, is taking place in the rather sparsely populated La Candon jungle uh, area of eastern and southeastern Chiapas state. Um, and the cartels, of course, want to control that territory to be able to run drugs through it and also to run people through it. They, they are diversified criminal operations involved in human smuggling and extortion and many other operations. Uh, so that uh, dispute over control of territory is affecting an area of about four and a half million acres uh, populated by 
mostly Tzeltal and also some Tzotzil, Lacandon, and other indigenous groups. Um, so the criminal groups have installed themselves. They've built uh, clandestine airstrips. They're controlling the roads. They're charging extortion for passage over the roads. And they're using violence to suppress anyone who uh, speaks out Richard, against the phenomenon. Yes. Why don't you also talk about this this on Javier Crossroads on the strategic area that is involved, which our listeners um, might not be aware of, and the um, the strategic areas of the Rio Negro unexplored archaeological zones of that area. Please unpack that for us. Sure. So the, um, the southeastern part of the state of Chiapas borders on Guatemala, and so there are many migrants crossing from Central America or coming through Central America up on their way toward the United States. So that's fertile ground for the criminal organizations to um, extort the migrants, uh, charge fees, engage in the trafficking of the people passing through the areas. That's one of the things that has made it strategic. Um, there are also some valuable minerals and natural resources in the area and some corporations, mining corporations and others. Um, and so the mix between the corporate interests, the transnational criminal interests, and frankly the state interests, um, those are really overlapping forces that are kind of working in various degrees of collusion with each other. Um, and it's uh, you know, creating havoc for the populations that have to live in that area. Uh, they, they, as I mentioned, charge fees for patients, they charge extortion, they threaten and kill people who speak out. Um, but really, that uh, seeming drug cartel-related violence is the tip of the iceberg of a long history of multifaceted violence in the region. Um, and the Zapatistas, the rebel group that rose up in 1994, issued a statement in 2021 that was very revealing in which they said Chiapas is in a state of war. Um, and it's not just about the Zapatista uprising because there's been a ceasefire, shaky ceasefire in place for some time since that 94 uprising, but the state of war includes many layers. Uh, the longstanding structural violence and centuries of neglect and discrimination and corrupt government the operation of these criminal syndicates, which are supported or tolerated by the state, uh, paramilitary groups where the government military forces arm, encourage, support um, local uh, armed actors as a way to try to provide uh, and weaken the um, strength and coherence of indigenous communities uh, for purposes of gaining control or clearing the territory for the corporate interests. And then old territorial local conflicts that instead of resolving, the government is more interested in fomenting those conflicts and, and using them. Uh, so it's really the current um, outbreak of violence in the Lacandon jungle, again, is the tip of the iceberg. It's revealing uh, many layers of longstanding violence. And the local communities have issued numerous denunciations. They've called upon the government authorities um, the Lacandon Community Zone, for example, in the heart of the Lacandon jungle, has issued over five uh, calls directly to the government authorities in the last two years, calling for government action to protect them from the violence. There was a march in August by 3,000 residents of the community of Nueva Palestina demanding protection from the criminal organizations, demanding that the government do its job. Um, 
and they they wrote a letter. There was another march in September in the uh, area of Frontera Corozal, uh, thousands of people um, denouncing the cartels, the human traffickers. Um, in the Frontera Corozal uh, case, uh, the local people, in frustration at the government's lack of concern, had actually formed their own kind of self-defense, you know, using walkie-talkies and communicating about where the roads were safe to pass and so forth. But one of the drivers who was part of that organized effort um, it was, you know, dragged out and beaten, and one of the criminal cartels carved the initials of the cartel on his back. So an extreme and grotesque level of violence. And then one of the incidents that got really international attention recently, just a few days ago, uh, it was videotaped. Uh, there was a parade in the Frontera Comalapa area um, near the community of San Gregorio Tamik um, in which Sinaloa cartel members in sort of makeshift armored vehicles uh, drove their vehicles in a parade and they forced the local community to line up on both sides of the road and cheer them and say, please, Sinaloa cartel, protect us from the competitor cartel. Um, it was... Um, you know, of course, a, uh, an orchestrated incident, but it gave the opening for the government to say, see, the problem is the local population. So the government is criminalizing the population, making it out as though they are somehow in on this um, criminal activity when really they are being victimized and the government has been looking the other way uh, all these years. Uh, so AMLO's response, the president of Mexico, Andres Manuel López Obrador, is, well, it's just a local problem, and if the local population would just stop supporting the cartels. But it's not that simple. The local population is terrorized by the cartels. Richard, in, in just kind of um, extending what you just said, I know this past September 15th through the 17th, the Fourth Assembly of the Women's Movement in Defense of Mother Earth in our territories was held in Palenque. And I know part of a, a statement that they released after the event, they stated, and this is what you were what you were just stating in response to Marcus's question, but they stated that organized crime has increased uncontrollably in various regions of the state, protection money, disappearance of young people, men and women, constant executions with total disregard for life. Um, and this population is exposed to being subjected to the actions of organized crime. So because you, you talked to the, about this, um, I was wondering um, if you have any additional information, not just about the assembly that recently transpired, but is this part of a larger pattern of resistance in, you know, in really um, the war on terrorism against indigenous peoples throughout the state? And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk on the escalation of cartel violence perpetrated against the indigenous peoples throughout the Lancondon jungle, Chiapas, Mexico region. And now back to the interview. Yes, definitely. Indigenous people have been uh, not only denouncing the violence, but denouncing the underlying injustice. Um, that's been going on and the insecurity that is created by um, these kinds of conditions where free reign is given to criminal organizations, transnational corporations, stripping resources and destroying the environment. So it's kind of ironic that the state has abdicated its responsibilities and assemblies like the one you mentioned 
uh, of indigenous and, and local community populations are really left to take over this role of being the defenders. Um, uh, Mexico is now uh, officially the world's most dangerous place to be an environmental defender, and a large portion of the defenders are, in fact, indigenous people. Uh, the World Wildlife Federation recently did a study saying that worldwide indigenous people are less than 5% of the population but are caring for 80% of the biodiversity. Um, and in caring for that biodiversity, they often find themselves confronted with uh, the transnational corporations and their mega projects that are given free reign under the neoliberal free market paradigm by governments like the current government of, of Mexico. Mexico itself is one of the seven most biodiverse countries in the world. Um, and indigenous people occupy uh, and have, at least theoretically, um, ownership and, and rights to the, uh, much of that territory that is in the sites of uh, global capital. So Palenque, where that assembly that you mentioned took place, um, is uh, right on the path of one of the mega projects that is a darling of the AMLO administration, the so-called Maya train project. Um, there's nothing Maya about it. Uh, most of Maya people and organizations have bitterly denounced it. This is a huge project that would run a train line through often uh, many areas of pristine uh, jungle and forest, 950 miles. Um, it's been denounced as an environmental and indigenous community disaster. Even Time Magazine recently ran a story uh, saying basically that. Um, when the uh, current administration in, in Mexico announced the project, um, they said not a single tree would be cut down to make room for uh, the, um, the train line and the surrounding project. But environmentalists estimate that about 9 million trees have been cut down so far as part of the, uh, the project. Um, it's threatening the water table for agriculture um, and also uh, particularly in the Yucatan Peninsula, uh, sacred Maya cenotes, underground uh, water-filled uh, caverns. Um, so uh, it's just a, a total disaster. One of the other examples, along with the one you mentioned, Larry, is that there was a caravan uh, led by indigenous activists called the South, the South Resists um, in May, where indigenous activists denounced the Maya train project as well as some of the other um, uh, mega projects of this sort. So this is really the larger picture of what's at stake. We see the kind of um, outcomes, the, uh, the flare-ups of, of violence, but underneath uh, is the structures of power that are laid bare, and it really tells us something about who counts and who doesn't count in the Mexican political system, who's being protected and who's not being protected. Richard, the article by Luis Hernandez Navarro talks about it ends with this. It says organized crime advances in a Lacadon community. It seeks to appropriate the territory, recruit young people, dismantle the associative fabric and tighten the siege on the peoples in rebellion. The alarm lights are on. The alarm lights, especially when peoples talk about the Indigenous Peoples Day, the alarm light is on not on falling in Lacadon area for all indigenous people in the hemisphere. What is your thought about this notion of this mantling? And I like the way you connect the dots about the alarm lights are on. What is so significant 
about this this connection with the narco trade, with the, the with the inability for this neoliberal policies and indigenous peoples' basic right to survive in their human right. Talk about that, please. Sure. As we approach Indigenous Peoples Day, I think it's important to remember this role that Indigenous peoples have played around the world in not only defending their own territories and customs and so forth, but really uh, doing the work of environmental defense, consciousness raising, um, and uh, protecting collective rights uh, in general against uh, the the greed and and self interest that is frankly destroying our planet, um, and so an example that I mentioned in this uh, march in Frontera Corozal, where the violence, much of the violence, is concentrated right now in, in Chiapas, this self defense group that formed in desperation. They called themselves People United in Defense of Uses and Customs. So uh, customs and traditions and the kind of um, forces that hold together a community, the bonds of solidarity and reciprocity that hold together a community, these are the lessons that in indigenous peoples um, have for everyone in the world, that if we are simply guided by selfishness and profit and, and short-term, uh, we're destroying ourselves and the planet that we live on. Uh, so I think that that's the, uh, the larger significance of uh, what's going on. Um, looking beyond just the headlines of which cartel is fighting against which cartel. Um, and to think that the government is somehow, uh, uh, you know, not involved or, you know, trying their best but not doing the job uh, is really disingenuous. Uh, the uh, Catholic Diocese of San Cristóbal de las Casas, the uh, region of Chiapas that occupies where most of the indigenous people are uh, in that state, uh, recently issued a statement saying that Mexico is a failed state and that that state is colluding with criminal groups and that they are being absolutely silent in the face of this uh, criminal violence. Um, and um, that's really what's going on. The response of the current administration in Mexico to escalating violence was to create a new National Guard force, throwing more gasoline on the fire by arming more uh, people in the state who really are not protecting indigenous people or the environment or anything else. They're nowhere to be seen when it comes to these battles between the cartels on the, the border. They started out as 60,000 people and it's uh, swelled to twice that number. And um, AMLO, the current president, had promised that it would not be a military force, it would be a police force. He immediately militarized them and put them under the command of an active duty general. Militarization is another component of what is uh, plaguing uh, Mexico, and far from controlling the narco-political violence, it's another factor in the violence. Uh, we just saw a couple of days ago the anniversary on September 26th uh, of the 2014 Ayotzinapa incident in which um, criminal organizations in the state of Guerrero um, colluding with the military and state officials uh, disappeared forcibly 43 students, indigenous students at a teacher's college in the state, um, apparently because uh, those students were uh, seen as an inconvenience to the drug traffickers. And so the government and the, um, and the military and the drug traffickers all got together and and made them disappear. So this is the ninth anniversary of impunity 
for uh, that heinous act. And the, um, the current government made a show of pretending to launch a real investigation, but they still don't want to point the finger at the military, which uh, you know, now it's clear. There was a recent article in the New York Times laying bare the transcripts of cell phone conversations that the military, which is one of the power centers in Mexico, was directly involved um, in that uh, act. Uh, so militarism is a major part of the problem. And the military, under the current administration in Mexico, has also been given administrative control of the largest of the uh, mega projects, including um, the um, uh, interoceanic or transisthmian corridor in the state of Oaxaca, one of the biggest uh, mega projects. It's under the jurisdiction of the Secretary of the Navy. Um, so um, I want to say a few words about the mega projects too, but the, the military control of those projects is sort of a, a double whammy. It's strengthening and giving uh, a larger economic base to this very undemocratic institution uh, that already enjoys impunity and that has a terrible and worsening human rights record. Richard, why don't you um, please explain the call, the second call to the caravan inter international gathering the South Resistance 2023, Il resisted the caravan and the international encounter. Talk about that for us, for our listeners. Sure. Um, some years back, uh, uh, previous administrations in Mexico announced that um, they had plans to develop the poor southern part of Mexico, develop in quotation marks, uh, meaning pouring a lot of money into supporting infrastructure and welcoming in uh, foreign capital and eliminating environmental and other kinds of regulations and looking the other way. So um, the government uh, named that uh, long-term strategy as part of the Puebla Panama development scheme that was supposed to um, involve infrastructural connections all the way through Central America and up through Southern Mexico, uh, the government called it, uh, the South also exists. So um, the, uh, the discourse was, well, the South of Mexico has been ignored, but now we're going to develop it. Um, so, uh, you know, of course, what they meant by development has been devastating for that region, and that was sort of why this caravan has taken its name, the South Resist. The South of Mexico is resisting this concept of what development means and whose interests are really uh, being uh, protected. Um, so it's a way to sort of call attention and build ties of solidarity. Uh, the Zapatista uprising of 1994 was really a watershed event in building connections among indigenous and other uh, oppressed groups in Mexico. Uh, it was only a couple of years after the Zapatista uprising that for the first time in Mexican history, a National Indigenous Congress was formed, the CNI, uh, linking up the 60-plus indigenous groups in the country and helping those groups have a platform and a, a, a means of kind of coordinating, sharing stories. Um, so that's part of what these initiatives are about, to draw attention, to build connections, to build solidarity, and to create strategies of effective grassroots resistance uh, to the schemes coming from above, from the state and from uh, global capital. Um, right now, Mexico is beginning to enter the, the year of presidential election campaigns. Uh, and the politicians, once again, are using 
the image of indigenous people and the, uh, the claim to being supported by indigenous people for their own electoral purposes. So, for instance, the current president's designated successor, a candidate of the Morena uh, party, the presumed candidate, Claudia Scheinbaum, who has been up to now the mayor of Mexico City, um, uh, recently made a campaign visit to San Cristobal, uh, the tourist city in the state of Chiapas, and she arranged a ceremony of indigenous women in traditional dress, handing her the, the symbolic baton of authority. Uh, meanwhile, indigenous people are bitterly protesting in the caravan and in these um, protests against the um, the drug trafficking control of the, the jungle region. Um, but she ignored all that and promised, as though it was a great accomplishment, more development projects, as she called it, such as the Mayan train. Um, and the so-called opposition candidate, Xochitl Galvez, who herself has indigenous roots, uh, represents a broad coalition of all the traditional political parties, and she herself came from the conservative PAN political party uh, that um, have a terrible record with indigenous people. And so Xochitl Galvez, the so-called opposition uh, candidate, um, promised uh, on the one hand, compliance with the San Andres Accords that had been negotiated with the Zapatistas in February 1996. But that dialogue broke down in September of 1996, and an anti-indigenous law was passed uh, in October of 2001, opposed by all the major indigenous groups in the country. that um, really uh, totally reversed the intent of the San Andres agreements on indigenous autonomy, rights, and culture. And she was part of the Fox government, which had a terrible record on um, indigenous issues, environmental issues, and she also promised more infrastructure, ecotourism projects. So the solution is not in the smoke and mirrors of electoral politics. Um, once again, indigenous people are being used as props uh, in this sort of sideshow, when underneath uh, we have the political parties, the state, the cartels, the transnational corporations, all essentially representing the same interest, as opposed to the grassroots interests represented by the caravans, the marches, the protests, the petitions, um, and the um, efforts to protect the environment and the uh, land and, and territories of indigenous communities. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We were speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk on the escalation of cartel violence and the state of Mexico's violence against the indigenous peoples throughout the Chiapas, Mexico region. That wraps up the first part of a two-part interview here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listen as the trees sing their songs in the wind. Lyrics and melodies for the spirit senses, songs of laughter and life, timeless things in timeless places. Do not be afraid to be strong, do not be afraid to love, but always remember. Always remember, love wisely, the love of being, free of possession, the love of being beyond desire, the love of being, respect for Mother Earth. Listen as the trees sing their songs. 
in the wind. Lyrics and melodies for the spirit senses. Songs of laughter and life. Timeless things in timeless places. Do not be afraid. Remember the medicine is in the time. Live this life to last. Join the time of tomorrow and the past. Be like us. Serve the creation. We will endure. Listen as the trees sing their songs. Listen. The song Listen. Song of Trees by John Trudell here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second half of our program, we continue with part two of our interview with Richard Stoller Schulk on the escalation of cartel violence throughout Chiapas, Mexico, the state violence, and the mega projects perpetrating extensive violence against Mother Earth and the indigenous peoples throughout the region. And now back to the interview. Richard, you you mentioned the upcoming elections. I know in the past we've talked about um, the treatment uh, by indigenous women that uh, running for office um, and I'm just curious, uh, are we seeing a, a repeat uh, scenario? And after that question, I have another question I'd like to ask about internationalism. Sure. Um, well, the two main candidates for the um, election next year, the July 2024 elections, are both women. Um, and, of course, some of the media are making that out as a great step forward for Mexico, but really they represent, again, the same sort of corporate interest. And even though one comes from an indigenous background, we're not um, seeing uh, <laughs> particular attention to the actual concerns of indigenous communities. Um, so I think it's uh, basically more of the same. It's politicians doing what politicians do everywhere, right. um, projecting one image and doing something else behind the scenes. In regards to internationalism, you know, and just using the terms states and nation states and, and um, where are other countries? I mean, we always, um, you know, every time we talk, you know, you provide us such crucial updated information about the struggles of indigenous peoples, you know, not just in Chiapas, but in other regions as well within Mexico. We know corporations work collaboratively together as transnational corporations, if you will. We know um, nation states like the U.S. work with Mexico. We know the cartels have a long legacy of not just narco trafficking, but human trafficking, but also the trafficking of mostly American-based weapons is all, you know, revenue sources. So... Outside of Mexico, you know, and outside of the grassroots organizations that you mentioned, where are other countries? Where are other states and nation states with this long legacy of oppression by the state and cartels perpetrated against indigenous peoples? That's a great question. Um, I just want to first comment briefly on uh, something you asked about a second ago, uh -huh. uh, the, uh, the candidates running for office. Um, in the last election, the 2018 election that Andres Manuel López Obrador won by a significant margin, um, the Zapatistas had teamed up with the National Indigenous Congress of Mexico to run a symbolic indigenous woman candidate as a right. really, again, a symbolic alternative, uh, Mari Chuy, right. uh, as she was affectionately known, a Nahuatl woman from the state of Jalisco. And uh, their point was not to uh, engage in the electoral game, but to show 
how vacuous the electoral game was, how it was rigged to begin with, and to use the campaign opportunity to raise awareness of the actual issues. And unlike the uh, the smoke-filled rooms in which candidates are generally chosen in, um, uh, in elections everywhere, uh, Madi Chui was the candidate of the National Indigenous Congress and of their Indigenous Council of Government, which was created by constituent assemblies, community by community, and all the indigenous communities all around the country. So it was sort of a lesson in uh, you know, what a real indigenous uh, representation uh, might look like. Uh, but on this question of the, the international dimension, it's a great question. As you know, the United Nations uh, passed an historic declaration, the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples in 2007, which is an important statement. It doesn't have legal force. It's not a treaty. It's a declaration. But even as a, as a declaration, some countries, notably the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, dragged their feet and were among the last to sort of reluctantly um, sign on to that declaration. The declaration, along with the Convention 169 of the International Labor Organization on uh, Indigenous and Tribal Peoples and Their Rights, recognizes what's called the right of free, prior, and informed consent, uh, FPIC, uh, for Indigenous communities before any use can be made of their territories, of their historic habitat. Um, so that has been just roundly ignored and violated, particularly in Mexico, and all the countries that signed these declarations and that are parties to these conventions. Mexico is actually a party to the ILO Convention 169, uh, are looking the other way and ignoring it. So states are certainly complicit. Uh, you mentioned the U.S. arms flow, and that's an important point. The arms industry is very powerful, as we know from the uh, various frustrated attempts to pass arms control uh, or, uh, you know, safety and, and control regulations within the United States. It's a powerful lobby, and it's been estimated that 70 to 80 percent of the weapons used by the cartels in Mexico are coming from the United States. Uh, there are the so-called um, gun show loopholes and lots of other uh, ways in which the politicians look the other way. The arms industry is very happy with the arrangement. So the U.S. government officially sells arms to the Mexican government. Uh, the U.S. arms manufacturers unofficially are uh, profiting from the arms flows going to the drug traffickers. And meanwhile, populations in both Mexico and the United States are sold the myth that somehow there is a war on drugs and that governments are doing their best to supply the war on drugs when it's um, uh, anything but that. And the transnational corporations, too, are very happy to have the muscle of the criminal organizations um, uh, breaking apart any indigenous and local resistance to their operations, to their mining and other uh, mega projects, so they're profiting, too. So the international interests, both corporate and, and state interests, are certainly present in um, these arrangements that are causing so much harm to communities in Mexico. Yeah, Richard, I have a question that is so important to indigenous peoples and also peoples of color and the social justice movement. They're always resisting against something. But the Zapatistas have organized and are going beyond just resisting with their autonomous regions, with their schools of Chiapas, with their explanation and about reaching out to the international community, not only to the so-called nation states, but other indigenous nations and peoples 
in order to develop a strategy, what they say, these Zapatistas and the Mayan peoples and communities are announcing to the international community, especially North America and Europe with this last decade approaching that effort into organizing, reaching out, and especially with the Sucobodante announcing to the world their positions of the Zapatistas, but this notion of the struggle and the vision of the future. And time and time again, they talk about the future, the vision, and about where all communities, all peoples can exist, and all worlds can fit. Talk about that. A, a comment on that, because we all want to get to that. It's just not about resistance. We re, we've been reviewing up about this notion of American Indian Airways since the inception of our programs here about the, the resistance, but now we have the opportunity to talk about a vision for the future. Please, what's your thoughts That's on that? That's an excellent point, Mark. It's very important to remember uh, the Zapatista and other struggles are not just resistance in a negative sense. They are also proposing uh, a much more positive, just model and not just waiting for that in the future, but making it happen now. And that's what the Zapatista Autonomy Project is all about. Uh, so when the Zapatistas rose up in desperation, uh, <coughs> excuse me, after 12 days of the government trying to crush them militarily, a ceasefire was signed, and the Zapatistas have not fired a shot uh, since then. Uh, instead, they've concentrated on building their structures of autonomy, which means in concrete, uh, creating from scratch in the most remote areas without uh, really any resources, uh, autonomous schools where people can learn about their own history from their own perspective, um, autonomous health clinics, integrating indigenous knowledge about uh, local plants and herbal medicine with other forms of medical care uh, and making them accessible, indigenous systems of justice where um, in local populations can have their cases heard in their own languages um, in fair and impartial proceedings, uh, rejecting the uh, corrupt structures of the official uh, government, uh, creating their um, own structures of government that are really quite innovative, um, where there's very frequent rotation of populations at the village level in and out of the structures of self-governance in Zapatista communities so that nobody becomes a professional politician. Ordinary people are, in a sense, governing themselves, learning the arts of government, um, and, of course, representing them, themselves, their interests, their communities. Uh, the whole community has to pitch in and support these projects of collective agriculture, agroecology, supporting the indigenous young folks who are the education promoters or teachers in the community, the health promoters. Uh, so it's really a collective group effort. Um, quite remarkable, especially given the historic neglect of 500 years of these areas, the lack of resources, et cetera. So that's the positive example. Um, it's been right under our noses uh, when the Zapatistas created all these structures of autonomy. All the government has been doing is trying to surround them with more military, attack them, send in paramilitaries to dismantle them. It's the government that is uh, negatively trying to destroy everything that the Zapatistas painstakingly, repeatedly uh, build up time after time. And finally, 
when the Zapatistas got tired of issuing public pronouncements and sort of turned inward and concentrated on their communities because uh, the government and the press, really, the international media, wanted to focus on the, the glamorous image of the former spokesperson of Commander Marcos. And the Zapatistas said, well, that's not really our movement. That was a spokesperson, but that's not the movement. The movement is what happens in the community. But anyway, uh, they continued to build their autonomy and stopped making the, uh, the flashy public uh, pronouncements. And then the international media, the Mexican government said, oh, the Zapatistas are irrelevant, they've collapsed, they have no support anymore, they don't exist. And after several years of a kind of strategic silence, the Zapatistas got tired of being told they didn't exist anymore. And so 40,000 Zapatistas in ski masks marched into San Cristobal and other towns in a silent march, and they said in a pronouncement that they issued, did you hear our silence? So it's not that they're not doing anything, it's that we're not noticing. Uh, our ears and eyes are not trained. Um, you know, in journalism, they say if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, we look for the conflict. We look for where's the latest drug cartel battle. Uh, but we don't look for the painstaking grassroots uh, work of the ants, as they call it in the communities, uh, the grassroots level building process that maybe it's not as flashy or sexy, but it certainly is the essence of long-term fundamental change. So I think that's a really essential point you made, Mark. And we want to remind listeners, you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Richard Stoller Schulk on the escalation of cartel violence perpetrated against the indigenous peoples throughout the Lancondon jungle, Chiapas, Mexico region. And now back to the interview. Yes, Richard, on, on that note, uh, we know that the Zapatistas who ever since the rebellion, that uh, different media has uh, had a different ebb and flow and their, their take on it. The um, media and the alternative media, whatever you want to call it, and the commercial media doesn't cover this, and that's why we're, we spent so much time on this. And you mentioned with this vision, um, and the Zapatistas mentioned this vision of going to the offensive going to the level on which uh, it's not only the ways and means to come up with slogans and to uh, pretty outlets of political uh, persuasions, of especially with North America, let's throw money of indigenous peoples and maybe we'll detract them to what the atrocities still to the very day and to the standard of living and to all the, the elements of where peoples are within urban areas where most of the indigenous people live in North America and the Canadian experience about the you know, Alaskan experience about the tragedy of their agreements and or the treatment of the so-called nation states. But that being said, about this notion of trenching in from below, trenching in as far as the lessons of the Zapatistas in Mexico in my view, is leading the, the aspects of going independently, independently of the liberal, uh, uh, neoliberal policies of capital, of the Democrats, Republicans, or independents, where don't express just like the PAN or the PRI or the, uh, the, uh, uh, the other, I forgot the name of the other party, the the so-called co coalition of the left, but yet mm -hmm. um, the PDR thing, 
But the, the whole thing is about not relying on the system, but acknowledge the system, what it does to us, and acknowledging this, this connecting the dots with the process of so-called democracy and the process of, of building a movement, a strategy, of tactics, of ideas, of the flow from that, that the Zapatistas stating that it's just not about doing what they're doing. It's about like the in Standing Rock, not just doing what people are doing in the local area, spreading and that spirit, that fire, that initiating the exploring. And as 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 you know, navigator I talked to um, some of the Kanakan Valley people and the situation we covered in here, American Indian Air was a Maori and Lahaina and the tragedy of people, if they don't know their history, they're going to repeat what's going on. And you can see all the dynamics of Lahaina and Maui and uh, Hawaii, the devastation of commercialization, of, of, of raping the land and ocean, and the same thing within California, and uh, California being the largest GMP in the world, one of them is the sixth largest. That being said, about working from below, it's not just you know, taking a model and, and using that model in order for people to, to mimic it, but to get down to what it means real below, organizing and educating and explaining what happened in the past, ever since Christopher Columbus and his devastation in the Europeans and now the Anglo-Americans and the Confederacy and the Northern American Civil War and what that did with slavery and all that kind of stuff. Talk about what does below mean? What is, when we say below, across the board, not only indigenous people, but the young social justice movement, the, the Black Lives Matter, that kind of thing, what we had in the 60s, the Panthers, the Amsters, the Berets, the Brown Berets, and the young you know, feminist movement talks about below and where they got completely wiped out or manipulated. Talk about that in history, how we're going to learn from that, and this, especially this notion of this up-and-coming Zapatistas, and this new leadership, the young people, they're taking the elements of the elders of, of, the, of the elders of that area and bringing it up to the modern technology, bringing it up to these modern situations where, yes, Mexico is under the state of siege, and we have to look at it that, yes, all the people within the world, especially social justice and the people who oppress people, are in a war for their survival and going to the offense. What do you think about what I just said? I agree. I think democracy is so much more than uh, elections and the games that political elites play. Uh, it really is the organizing that happens from below. And some of the examples that you gave and others, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, youth movements of various kinds, um, are so important and hopeful. And sometimes we don't even think of them as politics because we've been so brainwashed to think that politics is what um, uh, members of one or another uh, elite political party are uh, doing or saying about each other in the context of electoral campaign. Um, and that is so, such a shallow view of politics. So really, if we want to change the world, it's going to have to happen from below. And this, I think, is the inspiration of the Zapatista movement. Essentially, what they're saying is we are the change. We're not waiting for the change. We're certainly not waiting for it to come from above. 
um, but you know, we're going to try to make a difference in our communities. Um, so they really have been, as you said, spreading the fire because the Zapatistas are saying, we're not a vanguard. We're not telling anybody else how to organize. We're just suggesting that they should organize because if they don't, we're all going to be at the mercy of the, uh, the existing powers and the status quo is just not working for most people. Um, so here's the, the real contrast between uh, the kind of neoliberal version of capitalism that is um, facilitate the operations of the, the largest, greediest uh, private owners of, uh, of wealth. That's the neoliberal uh, model. And we see that in Hawaii, for example, in the recent disaster. Uh, Naomi Klein wrote about what she calls uh, uh, the shock doctrine, disaster capitalism. Uh, capitalism loves a good disaster. They either create it or, or take advantage of it um, so that they can uh, simply uh, build more things to sell. Uh, but that model of individual corporate greed, it's, it's self-destructive in the long run, and it's the total opposite of community building, uh, which is what indigenous people have been doing for a long time. Uh, there's wisdom in the model of those communities, and the, the Zapatistas are really highlighting uh, the importance of organizing wherever you are. Um, so. Um, there are many movements around the world who have explicitly been inspired by the Zapatistas, or even if they've never heard the Zapatistas, they are modeling that kind of um, behavior of not waiting for a savior from above, but organizing uh, from below to uh, try to make a, dis a difference locally. And really, that organizing process itself is in some ways more important than the outcome. It's the transformation that occurs when people start to talk to each other see themselves in the other. Um, uh, there's a, an indigenous saying in uh, some of the indigenous people in Chiapas say, uh, I am my other you, essentially. Uh, in other words, people um, operating in solidarity with each other rather than the zero-sum game that is capitalism. In your judgment, in your view, is anybody doing any work with that, with those, um, um, whether it be the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or the ILO 169, or other areas concerning the borders of Canada and Mexico, imaginary, the political borders, or Mexico and United States down in, um, down in the south uh, of us. Do we, see, do we see any light? Because immigration, the immigration policies, because um, we, when we cover immigration policy, we know that uh, large sectors of indigenous communities that are dealing with immigration and the border. Talk about that for a second. Sure. What we see in immigration policy in the U.S. lately is politicians trying to create this drama of a so-called threat of immigrants, uh, which is absurd. Instead of looking at, well, what are the larger forces of global capitalism and of the imperialist wars that the U.S. supported in Central America for so many years that are driving people in desperation uh, to migrate. And people have migrated since the beginning of time. The borders came afterwards. The borders are artificial creations of these power structures that we call states. Um, so once again, we're being distracted by a kind of red herring and we're made to feel that we should be somehow afraid 
uh, of migrants. It's not migrants who are the problem. It's why have we not been able to allow and create the conditions where people can be uh, satisfied and self-sufficient in their communities and choose where they want to live? Um, so it's this very different logic between the logic of communities and the uh, capitalist logic that now has gone wild on a global scale. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, again the uh, uh, the recent uh, disaster in Hawaii, which is called a natural disaster, but of course nothing is entirely natural because humans inter interact with nature and have been creating these conditions of uh, climate change for some time. Um, but then it's really revealing that when such a disaster occurs, instead of learning uh, the right lessons, the um, private uh, developers, the capitalist interests sweep in and say, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this and profit from people's misery. Um, and right here near where I live in the, the, uh, the, is the city of Detroit, where the same thing. There have been a series of shifts in the political economy of the region that have devastated, created massive unemployment, et cetera. And instead of trying to think about, well, what is our collective responsibility uh, as a community in a broad sense uh, to help people, uh, what we have is a kind of demonization, criminalization, and exploitation. The gentrifiers and the developers taking advantage of the pockets of where they can make money, again, on people's misery. The moment of silence is over. And that was Richard Stoller Schultz speaking on the escalation of cartel and state violence throughout Chiapas, Mexico against indigenous peoples. That concludes our show for today here on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to our guest, Richard Stoller Schultz. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, John Trudell, and the band Blackfire. American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in the studios of Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. Silence is over. And for the innocent, you can't justify why your freedom manifests on their graves. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. against our fears. Try not to become what we've been told.